Good morning. It is a privilege to be here among you again, and somewhat surprisingly, to have a role in our morning's worship service. Uh, to that end, I'd like to uh, ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. <clears throat> I'm going to be in the New Living Testament, our translation, but uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, the first chapter of, of the first verse of chapter 9. We're just going to read two verses to begin with. We're pretty much going to go through the whole chapter. In honor of his God and his word, if you are able, please stand for the reading. Beginning at verse 1, <clears throat> one day David began wondering if anyone in Saul's family was still alive. He had, been, he had promised Jonathan that he would show kindness to them. He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to show us what this passage, what this chapter has for us, what you would like us to come away with as a result of our time in it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. In order to provide some context as a prelude to this text, um, this moment in the life of King David, this is the man that was after God's own heart, the warrior King David, subduer of Israel's enemies. He finds himself in a brief moment of peaceful respite. And this is nestled between the recounted military victories of chapter 8, preceding chapter, and the ensuing armed conflict, moral failure, and family dysfunction in the chapters that follow. In verse 1 of chapter 9, we find reference to an oath, a promise made earlier to David, by David to Jonathan, son of Saul. The account of this promise is back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 to 17. There we find these freighted words of Jonathan spoken to David. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live, but if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all of your enemies. Then in verse 17, and Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. Now, alongside this pledge of undying fealty to David, Jonathan had a deep concern for David's enduring favor towards him during his lifetime, and no doubt an even greater concern for his family's well-being in the event of Jonathan's death. Jonathan's concern was in no doubt in part due to his intimate acquaintance with his vengeful father Saul as well as his knowledge of history. As we know in the course of time Saul and Jonathan are slain in battle on Mount Gilboa and as a result David is anointed king but Jonathan is no longer at his side. So deep felt was the loss of these two men that David, the musician, singer, and prolific psalm writer, 
composed a lament as an homage to Jonathan and Saul, recorded earlier in 2 Samuel, the first chapter. It includes this line in verse 26, how I weep for you, my brother Jonathan, how I, much I loved you. At this moment, we see in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, David is ruminating on the staggering loss of Saul and Jonathan. Following a long season of conflict, turmoil, and transition, chapter 8 of 2 Samuel reveals David as the conquering king, now very famous and reigning over all Israel with fairness. The lull briefly affords David this luxury of solitude, a time of remembering, loved ones lost, and a promise made. This closer than brothers friendship between David and Jonathan has resonated personally with me for 43 years. My own best friend since the ninth grade, Mark, I nicknamed him Marcus, was also a friendship closer than brothers in many ways. We grew up together having wild and crazy adventures. We talked and dreamed about what our lives would be like. At 24, I was married and Marcus was in our wedding. A year later, Gloria, my wife, was pregnant with our first child and Mark was engaged to Sharon, the sister of Brian, a high school friend. The future was bright. We all attended the same church at the time and life was good. Then came that middle-of-the-night phone call on February 2nd, 1980 from Sharon. <clears throat> Marcus had been shot and killed in a friendly fire, false dueling accident with her brother, Brian. The days that followed for me were a blur, and it fell to me to make the funeral arrangements for Marcus's funeral. And uh, in addition to this, Marcus had taken out a life insurance policy with me and named his fiancee, Sharon, as beneficiary. So I was now working my first death claim in my young career. This was before the missionary years. Life in that moment seemed to be way too real. About a month later, still deep in grief, I thought about my good fortune at being married to a wonderful woman and awaiting the birth of a child. And I, not unlike David, began to ponder what I might do as a gesture to honor my slain friend, who himself would never know the joy of marriage, let alone have his own children. I told Gloria I was certain that our child would be a boy, and I felt that we should name him Marcus. To honor my friend, our son Marcus is now 42, and he knows all about his namesake. Additionally, thanks to Sharon's selfless generosity, the beneficiary of that life insurance policy, those funds were invested, providing much-needed income for many years for Marcus's grieving, divorced mother who lived alone. This was a singular act of generosity and grace. In this, there was for me a measure of healing. So as we pick up the narrative back in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see David spurred by his enduring love for Jonathan and perhaps feeling once again the depth of that tragic loss. In verse 3, the king asked Ziba, is there anyone still alive from, from Saul's family? If so, I want to show kindness to them in any way that I can. Now, the word kindness here is from the original Hebrew text, and it should more appropriately be rendered grace, unmerited favor that can never be repaid, 
But lest I leave you with the impression that I have just given you a Hebrew lesson and I have nothing but a business degree to show for my education, I want to hasten to add that I am deeply indebted, uh, I am deeply indebted to Charles Swindoll, Ch Pastor Swindoll, and uh, for his enlightened and insightful biblical scholarship and others in my preparation. In verse 3, Ziba replies, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive, but he is crippled. We learn how this surviving son of Jonathan came to suffer further emotional trauma, this on the heels of his father and grandfather's death in battle. We learn of this back in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. When the news of Saul and Jonathan's death in battle reached the capital in great panic, the five-year-old son of Jonathan was picked up by his nurse, hurrying to flee. But she fell as she was running and dropped the child, and he became crippled in both feet as a result. So we go back to chapter 9, verse 4. Where is he? asked the king. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. I think it's appropriate at this moment to provide a little bit of Old Testament context as it was customary in ancient imperial dynasties for an incoming king to take the cautionary but brutal step of killing all the former king's remaining family members. This draconian measure was deemed prudent to avoid possible reprisal assassinations, and we see much of this uh, in the Old Testament alone. That is why Jonathan's surviving son was hiding out. It's also why earlier his nurse was in such terrified haste to snatch the young boy away to safety. No doubt in part, this was due to the custom in 1 Samuel chapter 20, which Jonathan was alluding to in extracting the oath from David, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies. At that time, Saul was David's enemy, and therefore possibly all of his family by extension. There is some further cultural and contextual unpacking that can be done here, part of which is found in the significance of the geographical location where Saul's surviving son was. It's worth noting that the son, his now disclosed whereabout of Lodabar, which means, again in ancient Hebrew, lo meaning no or none, and debar meaning pasture. Lodabar is a desolate wasteland east of the Jordan where nothing grows to sustain life. A singularly dismal dwelling place, yet an ideal place for someone to lay low and hide out in fear for your life from a potentially vengeful new king. But King David has a different agenda. David's intentions prove as counterintuitive counter for the times as his actions are countercultural. In verse 5, David says, so, so David sent him, Ziba, and no doubt a military escort as emissaries, and brought him, the son, from Makir's house. His name was Mephibosheth. I had to practice pronouncing that a lot uh, in my study. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. Imagine the scene at Makir's house. It opens to reveal embassies, emissaries sent by the king to take Mephibosheth to the very king from who he'd been hiding out. Ostensibly guilty by association as traitor to the king for his good deed, 
toward Mephibosheth, Makir and his whole family might themselves otherwise be in some danger. But we'll come back to this in a minute. Understanding something of the times and the history of kings, it's understandable that Mephibosheth's dread and angst at appearing before the king are greatly heightened. He would know of the grisly fate of Ishbosheth, his brother, another surviving son of Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, thinking to ingratiate themselves with new King David, two Benjamite brothers enter Ishbosheth's house, his bedchamber, and commit murder most foul. David, upon learning of their heinous act, however, made these two brothers pay for their misdeed with their lives. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we read further in verse 6, when he, Mephibosheth, came to David, he bowed low in great fear and said, I am your servant. No doubt this was the most disarming phrase that he could conjure up at such a terrifying moment. King David, however, is swift to reassure Mephibosheth in verse 7. David said, don't be afraid. I've had you come to me so that I can be kind to you because of my vow to your father, Jonathan. This must have come as a pleasant surprise and tremendous relief to this quaking servant. No doubt, when word reached Makir in Lodabar and his household, they too felt a wave of relief and joy at the news. This news confirming that neither were they in any danger for having sheltered Mephibosheth. So we continue in verse 8. Mephibosheth fell to the ground before the king. Should the king show such kindness to a dead dog such as me? He exclaimed. In verse 9, the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for his family. This was truly great news, but it gets better. David continues, but Mephibosheth will live here at the palace with me. Now we return to Makir, this other character in the story, who graciously took in and hid, housed and cared for Mephibosheth since Jonathan and Saul's death. Yet another act of unmerited kindness from which Makir might have otherwise incurred the king's wrath. Now I've heard it said in our generation that no good deed goes unpunished. But God's work and God's ways are different. Counterintuitive and countercultural in their own right. Jesus introduced the upside down kingdom. He taught, love your neighbor as yourself. Do not hate, but rather love your enemies. He who would be great must be servant of all. Blessed are the peacemakers. Radical teaching in his time, radical teaching in our time. David raises up Mephibosheth in Jonathan's honor, restoring his family's property, even bringing him to live in the palace. I can imagine that Makir noted King David's act of grace on behalf of Mephibosheth, which was a good deed. Indeed. David's lavish, gracious treatment of Mephibosheth was countercultural at odds with the kind of people we see invited into a king's entourage normally. His inner circle, his inner privileged circle in Eastern society, in Eastern society and, and not only, the disabled, 
handicapped, the marginalized, the off-scouring of society had reason to see themselves in that day, and not only, as Mephibosheth's graphic metaphor, that of a dead dog. I've witnessed this up close in our ministry in Egypt. Family members with disabilities are treated as non-people. They are often locked away and shunned. The family is considered cursed thus, and thus stigmatized by society. But when families with disabled members are introduced to the, people of, to the person of Jesus Christ and shown his love, when they understand how Jesus sees them, they are overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. Thousands upon thousands have come to Christ in many parts of Egypt, whole families all at once. They have a new identity and a new eternal address and a place at the table in the king's palace. Society seems to see only the outside. Samuel himself, the anointer of kings, was admonished by the Lord not to look at the outside appearance. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outside, outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We're going to look a little bit more at the heart in just a bit. In returning to the character of Makir from our story, in the course of time that follows chapter 9, that all-too-brief interlude of peaceful solitude is for David a distant memory. For in 2 Samuel chapter 17, we find David running for his life from his power-hungry son Absalom. Obviously, Absalom didn't get the grace memo. In great need of help, David himself, with his men, crossed the Jordan to the east near to Lodabar at Manahem. Absalom, the usurper king wannabe, is leading his forces across the east in hot pursuit. Arriving in Manahem, weary, David is warmly greeted, among others, by Makir, son of Amiel of Lodabir. They had brought extensive provisions, sleeping mats, cooking pots, serving bowls, wheat, barley flour, all manner of provisions for David and his men. For they said, you must all be tired and hungry and thirsty after your long march through the wilderness. Good deed, grace indeed. What goes around comes around even for King David, a king on the run. Now the portrait of Jesse's great son, King David, serves to point the way to salvation, salvation and adoption into sonship, to be wrought by David's greater son, King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. In the narrative, we see that Mephibosheth regularly dines at the king's table. This even though his land holdings were being worked to provide all necessary food for his family. At the king's table, Mephibosheth surely enjoyed great feasting and fellowship, much as we enjoy similar blessings, spiritually speaking, when we come regularly to King Jesus' table, as we are encouraged in Scripture to do. How fitting and right that this would be a communion Sunday at First Evan. And this is because we believe in the Lord's sent one, and this is part of the work of God. The very words of Jesus written in red, spoken to his disciples in John chapter 6, 29. This is the work of God. Believe in the one he has sent. 
Yes, we feast on deep fellowship and enjoy meals together, including the Lord's Supper. We are fed as well on the Word. And we lean into and live out that work of God, believing in Him who sent Jesus, so that we might each partake as the church of God in the works of God. This from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. King David sent his emissary to Lodabar to herald good news, unmerited grace bestowed upon a lowly servant, disabled, handicapped, and unworthy. The servant was then raised up to enjoy fellowship with the king. As an adopted son, no less, adopted into the family with full benefits, there to dwell with the king through no merit of his own, something of which he could never be worthy, receiving grace upon grace. All that was needed was for the king's emissary to go in obedience to deliver the good news, to share the good news with his undeserving servant and show, and show him the way to the king. Just as the warrior King David sent an emissary as a herald of good news in his time, centuries later, Jesus came to proclaim the inbreaking of the kingdom through the presence of God in the second person who called, prepared, empowered, and sent out his, his chosen emissaries to the broken and spiritually handicapped in his time. That was then. This is now. This is our time. And each of us are sent in our day, this day, as an emissary of the king. Yet tellingly, let's see, I'm done. Before salvation, we were no less broken and spiritually disabled than was Mephibosheth. Through no merit of our own, Christ raised us up to salvation, perhaps due to good works of other sent missionaries for our good and his glory, for such a time as this. And we've been given the Holy Spirit to empower our own good works. I was just last month in Ukraine due to this horrible war. Ah, but I repeat myself. And I made two trips into Ukraine from Romania with your help, and we transported needful things to David and his team in Cherkasy. I left that war-torn country to return home to my own home country, which is in some ways no less at war with itself. As a society, our weapons of war appear to be domestic discord, division, hatred, and vitriol. Civility and reason were early casualties in our cultural war. Satan is having a field day in America. This is on the heels of two plus years of pandemic. So much of our citizenry are deeply traumatized, spiritually blind, and groping in the gathering darkness for meaning and purpose. Yet tellingly, none of the secular voices articulating the very real ills of our time seem to apprehend the heart of the matter. That is because it is at root a matter of the heart. Until or unless there is a change of heart, a heart of stone surrendered to God, made new through the cleansing power 
of the Holy Spirit through redemption into a heart of flesh, a heart that longs to live and move and have its being, doing things that are pleasing to God, then and only then will we begin to see meaningful societal change, a deeper and broader inbreaking of the kingdom. And this is our mission. We are called to live out the good news of Jesus in the midst of this social melee. We are to live in an engaged, countercultural, impactful manner, being the good news to a broken, hurting world in our neighborhoods, across the country, and around the world. Where and as we are called, leaning into the good works prepared for us in advance, each in our turn, sent it as an emissary of the king. Which brings me to the already prepared good work that brought Gloria and I to First Evan on this trip. I had to send her Friday to California, however. Her father is in his last moments, so I'm, I'm here alone now. Um, and uh, the reason we came here was because of what's gonna happen in the gym later this afternoon. And I want to mention that uh, Gloria and I were first in Cherkasy some 20 years ago. David and Katya were just beginning their ministry, and we were their team leaders. From Romania, uh, uh, we went to see them, and uh, it's just nothing short of amazing to see all that, the God, uh, that God has used them for to bring about this, uh, this anointed couple, how God has used them over the years. David and Katja's long tenure and broad missional reach uniquely positioned them from the outbreak of this war to reach out to thousands of displaced Ukrainians who fled to Cherkasy. All help is given, as you know, with a living example of the message of hope found only in Christ. And we're seeing over a thousand people in Bible studies, people coming to Christ, people being baptized, being baptized, which is the silver lining in this horrible war. The good, the good work that they are doing each day will be once again greatly helped and complemented by the good work that so many of you will be helping with this afternoon in packing boxes of food. For what's First Evan's enthusiastic response to this project of boxing $100,000 meals, uh, 100,000 meals, uh, is at once for me totally amazing and not at all surprising. It seems like that's what First Evan is all about. Now, I need to explain something that David has been distributing these food packets already for three or four months. Many of them are going to the front lines. Some have fed soldiers on the front lines. It's going to places where they don't have power, they don't have food, and that's because Novo brokered a deal uh, a few months ago to purchase already boxed and containerized meals that were in that part of the world and sent to David. And we just simply gave a promise. The promise was that we would try to find an organization, a church or something, that would do a similar project. First Evan is helping us to keep that, project, that promise. We can't tell you how much that, that means to us. And um, Paul in Philippians speaks in chapter one, speaks of their partnership in the gospel. 
And partnership in that context has a deeper meaning to it. It's a fellowship in the ministry of the gospel being in an equally yoked partnership. And I've been asked over the 34 years that I've been in ministry, often, I've been asked at this church, I've been asked in this city, so what does partnership in ministry really, what does that actually mean? What does it look like in a real sense? Now, those of you who know me pretty well know that I don't know much, but I do know one thing, that today's good works prepared in advance for First Evan is what real partnership in ministry means. And what you'll be doing with your hands and hearts this afternoon in service is exactly what partnership in ministry looks like. So I've finally been able to articulate an answer to that question. So I want to thank you for helping us keep our promise. I want to thank you for being First Evan all these years. And uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. We pray, Lord, your blessing on this church. We pray that the work of this day would be sent forth and would result in another kind of harvest, Lord, of those who would come to know Christ because of the help that reaches them. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.